You are listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast, an honest and non-judgmental discussion on faith in God and the doubts we often have, why it's sometimes difficult to trust God, and how we can know with a surety that He loves us. This show centers on strengthening and rebuilding our faith after loss, tragedy, or when coming to Christianity from a non-Christian or pseudo-Christian worldview. Now, here is your host, Gene Curl. Hello and welcome back to Recovering Faith. Today's episode is going to cover problems with the Book of Mormon, uh, problems in the second part of the Book of Alma. And before I get started there, if you haven't already, go check out the Recovering Faith Facebook page and uh, either on Facebook or on Twitter or just on my website, genecurl.com. I would love to hear from you. The members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which uh, most people know are called Mormons because of the Book of Mormon. Anyhow, the the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are some of the kindest, friendliest, and most generous people that I have ever had the privilege of knowing. And it's sad that they believe the lies that are told to them by the church. When I look back on it, I'm amazed at the mental gymnastics that I used to perform so that I could avoid things that would cause me to doubt the church and to reconcile the troubling things about the church that I could not avoid hearing. I had been taught that the Book of Mormon was error-free, But the first time I read the book, I noticed errors, and lots of them. However, since the people were so nice, I wanted to believe the church and its flagship book to be true, to the point that I allowed the apparent errors to be explained away. I managed to either ignore or suppress all my doubts about the church to the point that it allowed me to gladly join the church. When I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I didn't truly know what it holds for doctrine, and by the time I learned, I felt obligated to believe it. The church has a saying they like to use, milk before meat, which is another way of saying that they don't teach anyone anything that might scare them away from the church, and they slowly introduce the more troubling doctrines once a person is more committed to the faith. I convinced myself that the only reason anything about the church appeared to be wrong, especially with the Book of Mormon, was because I didn't know enough about the church. I spent the next ten years learning everything I could about the church, its history, its doctrine, everything, and desperately trying to explain away all the inconsistencies and the apparent lies of the leaders. I defended the church every chance I got, regardless of the personal cost even if I wasn't convinced that the official answer was the true answer, because I felt that it was my duty to defend the church. Another major factor in my stalwart defense of the church was that I didn't want to think that I had believed a lie. The longer that I had been a member of the church, and the more time, money, and talent that I invested in it, the more determined I was to prove to myself and to others that it was true. Eventually, the evidence tipped the scales in such an obvious way that I could no longer pretend that I hadn't noticed it. 
I really wish that I had listened to the evidence when it was first presented to me, instead of devoting so much time and effort to defending a lie. And the kicker is, it wasn't even a lie that benefited me. The church teaches that it's a sin to question the leaders of the church, and that it's a sin to speak against them, even if they are in the wrong. During my time in the church, I was told that to speak against one of the leaders was the same as speaking against the Lord. Anyone who wants to investigate any claim made about the church is strongly discouraged by the church, and they are told that all criticism of the church is from the devil. The problem of automatically assuming that any criticism of the church is of the devil is that history has given us many examples of people who have been outright lying to their followers, and they use that tactic to keep them from discovering the truth. David Crash of the ill-fated Branch Davidians, Jim Jones, Scientology, and many other groups make or have made the same claim about their critics, and for the exact same reasons. They know the truth will set you free. Any claim that is true will hold up to examination, and it is not afraid of the truth. It is not a sin to have doubts, nor is it a sin to do a little research to make sure that what you are devoting your life to is actually true and is the will of God. I have heard many true-believing Mormons say that all churches ask their members to not question, but I know for a fact that that statement is not true. I have heard many pastors encourage their congregation to find out for themselves, and not just from internal sources. I am not spending my time exposing the truth about the church because of any ill will or animosity, but out of a love for those who are trapped in the LDS church. The issues in the Book of Mormon, uh, in the Book of Alma, we're picking off where we left off in the last section, uh, so it'll be starting with chapter 26. And the issues in chapter 26 and 27 of Alma are things that I've already addressed ad nauseum, so I will skip them and move on to chapter 28. In the italicized chapter heading for chapter 28, it says, The Lamanites are defeated in battle. Tens of thousands are slain. The wicked are consigned to a state of endless woe. The righteous attain never-ending happiness. About 77 to 76 B.C. Unlike the mention of things in the Americas that should have not that should not have been present there at that time frame, such as steel, silk, horses, cattle, wheat, the wheel, and uh, a lot of other crops, and the people's obvious failure to follow the law of Moses while claiming to follow it, major wars that are reported to have killed tens of thousands of people can't just be glossed over or swept under the rug. In the story up to this point. There have been a lot of wars, and in Alma 28, 2-3, it says, There was a tremendous battle, yea, even such a one as never had been known among all the people in the land from the time Lehi left Jerusalem. Yea, and tens of thousands of the Lamanites were slain and scattered abroad. Yea, and also there was a tremendous slaughter among the people of Nephi. Alma 28, 10-11 says, and from the first year to the fifteenth has brought to pass the destruction of many thousand lives. Yea, it has brought to pass an awful scene of bloodshed, and the bodies of many thousands are laid low in the earth, while the bodies of many thousands are moldering in heaps upon the face of the earth. 
By the end of the narrative in the Book of Mormon, millions of people were killed and many cities destroyed. And even if we are to believe what it says in 3 Nephi, that some of the cities were covered by mountains and buried in the depths of the sea, there would still have been plenty of evidence of the civilizations, especially since the story tells us that the people rebuilt and expanded and became a great people after that. Throughout the Book of Mormon, there are a lot of verses, such as Alma 32, that says that so many people died that they were not even numbered. And another instance of so many people dying that they weren't numbered is Alma 44.21. Alma 33 says, Yea, and the people did observe to keep the commandments of the Lord, and they were strict in observing the ordinances of God, according to the law of Moses. For they were taught to keep the law of Moses until it should be fulfilled. I've said it many times, but the only indication we have that these people were following the law of Moses is that they claim to be following it. There are a few mentions of animal sacrifices, even though the law of Moses specifically states that such sacrifices are only allowed at the temple in Jerusalem. But there is no mention of observing the Passover or any other Jewish feasts or festivals. There's no mention of ritual washings, no mention of Sabbath observances, no mention of the laws pertaining to what they could and couldn't eat, etc. Not only are these people not following the law of Moses, but they are constantly talking about how dead the law is, and they are constantly talking about the coming of the Messiah in great detail, much greater detail than any of the writers of the Bible were privileged to. All throughout the story, many of the people act as if the law of Moses had already been fulfilled. Before the birth of the Messiah, the thought of treating the law of Moses as if it had been fulfilled or treating it lightly would be considered to be the highest of blasphemy to anyone who was truly living the law. While it is true that the law pointed to the coming of the Messiah and the work that he would do, the law was everything until it was fulfilled, and no one was a Christian before the coming of Christ. It is interesting that in Alma 30, a man named Korahor, who we are told was an antichrist, condemns the leaders and the teachers of the people for teaching that they are under condemnation for the sins of Adam. And he says, Behold, I say that a child is not guilty because of its parents. The interesting thing here is that the villain seems to agree with the second article of faith, which says, We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgressions. And the people who were supposed to be the righteous people in this story did not seem to agree with him on this. Chapter 31 of Alma tells of the mission Alma leads to the reclaim the apostate Zoramites. And when I read this section of the book, I always think about a training and zone conference on my mission that was taught by my second mission president's wife. Part of the reason that I remember the training so clearly, other than the fact that I took notes on it, is that every time she would say a specific word, we were all to jump up and with gusto and enthusiasm shout, Remyumptum! In the story told in Alma, the Remyumptum is a platform on which the Zoramites stand to declare their belief in God and to thank him for separating them from their brethren and for showing them that their brethren's belief were not, beliefs were not correct. Each Zoramite proclaimed their church and their beliefs to be true and that the beliefs of their brethren were not and that they would be the ones to be saved. Whoever among those Oramites wanted to speak would go up on the Ramiantum 
and would say the exact same thing, or as Alma tells us, the, safe, the self-same prayer unto God. It didn't occur to me at the time, but the LDS Church has its own version of the Ram Neumptum in the form of the, st- of the stand in the Fast and Testimony meeting. On the first Sunday of every month, members of the Church of all ages get up and, with the exception of the one ward member in every ward who is certifiably insane, everyone says the self-same thing, and it goes something like this. I know the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true and living church upon the face of the earth. I know Joseph Smith was a true prophet and restored the gospel. I know we have a true and living prophet today. I know the Book of Mormon is true and that it was translated by the gift and power of God, and the rest of the scriptures are true as well. I know that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency are prophets, seers, and revelators. I know that the temple is truly the house of God. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Most people only ever mention Jesus as the closing of their testimony, like an afterthought. In almost every sacrament meeting, as well as all other meetings in the church, Jesus is second fiddle to Joseph Smith, and it doesn't seem to bother anyone, or at least if it does, they are afraid to say anything about it. If anyone ever gets up in fast and testimony meeting and only talks about Jesus and fails to, to mention Joseph Smith or any of the prophets of the church, the congregation looks at him or her as if they had just talked about the grossest of sexual perversions. The reason I made the disclaimer about the certifiably insane ward member is that in every ward, there is that one person who inevitably goes up to the stand, and anyone who has attended an LDS church meeting for any length of time can attest to this, and they spout the incoherent ramblings of an insane person that has no relevance to the church or anything anyone would want to hear. But to be nice, the rest of the ward members humors him or her. I have heard people talk about everything from inconsistencies in their stool to birthing pigs. It's odd that no one scalded or criticized them for talking about crazy things, but people are scalded for talking about Jesus and the Bible without mentioning the church, prophets, or the Book of Mormon. Another thing that Alma talks about in relation to the Zormites is that once they left the meeting, they would not talk about God again until the next meeting. And I've discovered that many, many LDS people are that way. I gave my all to the church, so I could not understand why people who were active in the church would refuse to talk about God or the church other than on Sundays or on their way to the temple. On a temple trip, I carpooled with a group of people from my ward, and the other people in the car got annoyed with me because I wanted to talk about gospel topics on the way back from the temple. The other occupants of the car told me that they had already met their religion quota for the week, and this was far from being an isolated incident. I always thought that if the church were true, it should affect every aspect of a person's life, and that they should be excited to talk about it. As I briefly mentioned above, one of the core beliefs of the Zormites was that they were in the one true church, and that all other people would be lost. And while some Latter-day Saints won't admit it, the LDS Church teaches that only faithful Mormons and those who didn't have a chance to hear about it in this life and accept Mormonism in the afterlife 
and have proxy work done for them here on Earth will be saved, or rather exalted, which is their ultimate goal. Honestly, Mormons don't like the term saved, and they almost treat it like it's a dirty word. According to their doctrine, almost everyone will be saved, but only those who are the most righteous will be exalted. One of the things in the Book of Alma that I used to think was about the most brilliant thing in the world, and would use it as an example when teaching people about the church, I now realize is full of holes. Alma compared having faith in what he was teaching to planting a seed. Alma said that if the people would take the seed and not cast it out by their unbelief, and would allow it to grow, then they would see that it's a good seed. Alma said that because a seed grew, uh, grows and produces good fruit, that it means that it's a good seed. At first, that seems to make sense, but when you apply a little logic to it, the whole thing falls apart. Just because my faith in something grows, that does not mean that what I have faith in is true, even if it causes me to do good works or have good fruits. Imagine that a friend introduces me to a music artist that I'd never heard before, and they tell me that the artist is the greatest artist of all time. If I don't cast out the seed by unbelief and experiment on my friend's word, and if I listen to some songs by the artist, and that convinces me that the artist is the best artist in the world, that doesn't make it true, even if listening to the songs makes me a better person. While I was serving my two-year mission for the church, people sowed the seed of doubt in regards to the church in my heart, and that seed grew until it was a full-grown tree. Would Alma say that it was a good seed because it grew, even though it caused me to lose faith in his book? As I mentioned, Alma also says that you can tell if it is a good tree by its fruit. By allowing myself to doubt the LDS church, I have become nicer and, and a less judgmental person and I have accepted the Jesus of the Bible. I would say that that is good fruit, but Alma would not agree since it led me to believe that the Book of Mormon is not true. Alma 34.6 tells us that the, the word of Christ is unto salvation, and it is clear that when the Book of Mormon talks about salvation, it does not mean exaltation. The word exaltation does not even appear in the Book of Mormon, and the concept of becoming gods is completely foreign to the doctrine of the book. I've mentioned this before, but the doctrine of the Book of Mormon clearly teaches that once we die, there is no chance for salvation, which invalidates the LDS temples. One of the best examples of this is Alma 34, chapter, uh, verses 32 through uh, 35. For behold... This life is a time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And now, as I said unto you before, as you have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that you do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then come with the night of darkness wherein there can be no labor performed. Ye cannot say when ye are brought to that awful crisis that I will repent, that I will return to my God. Nay, ye cannot say this. For that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time ye go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. For behold, if ye have procrastinated the day of your repentance and even until death, 
Behold, ye have become subject to the spirit of the devil, and he doth seal you his. Therefore the spirit of the Lord hath withdrawn from you, and hath no place in you, and the devil hath all power over you. And this is the final state of the wicked. I have heard Mormon apologists say that this is only referring to those who had a chance to believe the gospel in this life, but chose not to. However, the story that I mentioned in the last section about Ammon and King Lamoni's father clearly shows that, according to the Book of Mormon, no one has a chance for salvation after death, not even those who never knew of the gospel. If you didn't listen to the last installment of the series, Ammon, who was one of the prophets in the Book of Mormon, uh, he's preaching to Lamanites, and he comes up with this king named Lamoni, and he preaches to him and he converts him. And after Lamoni is converted, he's going with Ammon to go free his uh, brothers and brethren out of prison. And on the road, they encounter Lamoni's father. And Lamoni's father wants to kill Lamoni because he's believing a Nephite. But Ammon stops him from killing his son and tells him that it's bad that he kills him, but it would even be worse if he died because he said, if you were to die in your anger, you couldn't be saved. And at this point, Lamoni's father had never heard of the gospel. And he was telling him that if he died in his anger, he couldn't be saved. Therefore, that is about the clearest example of teaching that a person can't be saved if they were to die uh if they're to die without salvation. Uh, it can't be any clearer than that that temples that proxy works for the dead don't do any good. But then, as I said, Joseph Smith came up with the temple doctrine after the Book of Mormon was written. In chapter 37, Alma is talking to a son and relates the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness and how they would be healed if they would look up to the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up on the pole. But that many thought it was just too easy and refused to do it. And in verse 46 he says, O my son, do not let us be slothful because of the easiness of the way. For so was it with our fathers. For so it was prepared for them, that if they would look, they might live. Even so it is with us. The way is prepared. If we will look, we may live forever. <clears throat> there is nothing easy about the doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in fact, the Church often criticizes Christianity because they say that it's too easy. So, it's clear that Alma was not in any way talking about the convoluted mess that is the LDS doctrine. And throughout the book, he talks about just believing in Jesus and says nothing about temples, tithing, eternal marriage, or any of the other doctrines that are considered to be essential for exaltation. Alma 38.9 says, And now, my son, I have told you that this, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that of me that there is no other way or means whereby man can be saved, only in and through Christ. Behold it. He is the life and the light of the world. Behold, he has the word of truth and righteousness. Nowhere in the entirety of the Book of Mormon does it talk about Joseph Smith having any say on whether or not we enter heaven. Jesus is all we need, and that is what the Book of Mormon teaches. But of course, 
This was, quote-unquote, translated before Joseph Smith came up with most of his later doctrines. Alma 41.1 talks about people resting the scriptures. And rest is spelt W-R-E-S-T. And if you're not familiar with that word, that means to twist or distort. And the church does a fair amount of, of twisting and distorting when it comes to the Bible. And they justify it by saying that the Bible we have today has been corrupted and is not reliable. The church takes many verses out of context and in attempts to support their unbiblical doctrines, such as baptisms for the dead. At some point in the future, I plan on discussing the problems with a Joseph Smith's quote-unquote inspired translation of the Bible, but not today. All throughout the Book of Mormon, it talks in great detail about Christ and acts like he'd already come. I recently started listening to the My Book of Mormon podcast, and it's extremely interesting to hear the book read from the perspective of a person who has never read it before and who doesn't know much about the church. And the one thing that the host mentions constantly is how ridiculous it is that the people of the Book of Mormon had so much knowledge of Christ when the writers of the Bible didn't, and that they were acting like he had already come when he would not be born for many years. The My Book of Mormon podcast is from the perspective of a person who is not religious, so some of the things he has issues with or doesn't completely understand is simply because he's not familiar with religion. But he noticed many issues in the book without comparing it to anything other than itself. The host also could not help but notice all the blatant plagiarisms from the Bible. One of the My Book of Mormon's uh, criticisms of the Book of Alma was that the story of Alma was a cheap copy of the story of Moses, especially with how Alma died. And just in case the reader missed the comparison, it was clearly spelled out. In Alma 46, 13-14, it talks about people calling themselves Christians. 73 years before Christ was even born, while still claiming to follow the law of Moses. I simply can't believe that a people who followed the law of Moses would call themselves Christian before Christ had even come, especially since none of these people had ever had any exposure to Greek, and they would not have called the Messiah Christ. They would have used the Arabic or Hebrew word. The word Christ originated from Christos, which is a Greek word meaning the anointed. In Hebrew, uh, Jesus would have been called I am not sure if I can say this right. It's M-A-S-H-I-A-C-H or Messiah. Uh, No logical line of thought would lead to God or one of his angels referring to to the Messiah as Christ to a Hebrew-speaking people who had never encountered Greek. Speaking of angels, The LDS Church places a huge emphasis on the appearance of angels in the story of the church's origin. The church also places an extreme amount of emphasis on believing the church because of a good feeling instead of evidence. From just a simple reading of the Book of Mormon, we can see why that is a bad idea. In Alma, in the Book of Alma, there is a man named Korihor. He went around preaching against the teachings of the church. Eventually, he was struck dumb by God when he asked for a sign, and he wrote out that he had been deceived by the devil, who had appeared to him in the form of, a, in the form of an angel of light. And the angel that 
the devil that looked like an angel of light told him to go and reclaim the people because they had all gone astray. An angel of light appearing to a man and telling him to reclaim the people because they had all gone astray is the origin of the Book of Mormon and the Mormon Church. If it's so easy to be deceived by an angel, then why should we trust a man who said he was given a message by an angel, especially since no one else heard the message? Alma told Korihor and the people to follow the scriptures instead of following what the deceiving angel of light said, and that is good advice. Everyone should follow the Bible instead of following another gospel preached by a man who got it from an angel of light, or at least one that looked the part. The Bible is clear that we should not follow another gospel, and the Book of Mormon admits right on the cover that it's another gospel. It says it's another testament. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. In the book of Alma, there's a man named Captain Moroni, and he's corresponding with a man named Amaron, and there says that they're sending epistles back and forth. And of course, epistle is a Greek word, so there's no reason a people of Semitic origin would use the Greek word for letter since they would have spoken Hebrew or Aramaic. Or Arabic, I mean. Some apologists say that Joseph Smith used the word epistle because it was the word he was familiar with, which would make sense if the golden plates were translated in the traditional manner. But that explanation falls apart when we are, if we are to believe the official story from the church about how they were translated with the gift and power of God. The way in which the Book of Mormon was reportedly translated would have not have left any room for Smith to substitute words. And since the people in the 1800s in America used the word letter instead of epistle, it is far more likely that Smith used the word in an attempt to make the book read more like the New Testament of the Bible. The LDS Church history tells us that Joseph Smith was given the words uh, he, actually what happened is he would look at the, his seer stone and he would see the characters in the Book of Mormon and then he would see the English translation and he would read that translation out to a scribe and then the scribe would write down what Joseph Smith said and then they would repeat him back and if the words were not exactly the way God wanted them then Joseph Smith would not be given the next set of words until whatever was wrong was corrected. Given the translation method, the only way and uh, the only way epistle could have been used is if God wanted to use an uncommon word, or more likely that Smith chose to use it since it was in the Bible. Having the word epistle used by a pre-European people of Jewish descent in the Americas who had never had any contact with the Greeks is simply out of the question. True believing Mormons say that the Book of Mormon is without error, but a fairly noticeable one is found in Alma 58, where there is a conflict on whether or not blood was shed in the retaking of the city of Manti. In verse 21, it says that after the Lamanite army was led out of the city of Manti on a ruse, and what happens is, is they take a small group of men and march them by the city, and uh, the Lamanites come out to attack them, and when they're chasing a the small group, the rest of the Nephite army comes, sneaks in, and takes the city. 
and it says that they fell upon the guards who were left in the city, insomuch they destroyed them and did take possession of the city. However, in verse 28, it says that the city of Manti was taken without the shedding of blood. So, I guess that the guards that were destroyed somehow doesn't count. People who truly believe in the LDS Church will say that the Book of Mormon is without error, but that is only because they have not allowed themselves to see the errors. Anyone who is looking at the book objectively will right away notice a lot of errors. And in fact, uh, Mark Twain read the Book of Mormon and he said it was chloroform in print. Anyhow, thanks for listening again to this podcast. I hope that you got something out of it. And uh, if you could, if you haven't already, please go and rate and review this podcast on iTunes or uh, Google Play or wherever you listen to it. And uh, I will catch you next time. Uh, then The next section that I have on the Book of Mormon is going to be on the Book of Messiah. And I'm going to try hard to get the entire Book of Messiah in one podcast episode, so we'll see what happens. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. Please rate and review this show and share it with your friends and family. You are loved.